All right, welcome back to the show. Today is a significantly historic date in the history of British Columbia. It was 50 years ago today that the NDP government of Dave Barrett was elected. 1972, August 30th of that year, exactly 50 years ago today. Wow, that was an historic breakthrough for the NDP in Canada, the election of a provincial government, Dave Barrett, was elected the premier 50 years ago today. Have a listen to this historic audio here. You're going to hear Dave Barrett being introduced here at his victory rally and hear some comments from Dave Barrett, who was elected premier 50 years ago today. Have a listen to this. Tonight I want to introduce you to the premier of More than anything else, what gives me a sense of pride tonight is the knowledge that for 40 years, literally tens of thousands of people have worked in the CCF and the NDP to bring this day about, and I promise you this, I will not let their hopes or aspirations down. We will now move into a people's century in British Columbia. As Dave Barrett there 50 years ago today, winning that historic election in British Columbia for the NDP. That was a one-term NDP government, but man, they got a lot done in the short years that they were in power. Now, Dave Barrett, 50 years ago, defeated a legendary premier, W.A.C. Bennett, the social credit premier who was premier for 20 years in British Columbia. He was defeated 50 years ago today by Dave Barrett. Here's a listen to W.A.C. Bennett. Conceded, earlier conceded the election, and here he is talking about the future of the province under the NDP. I, I will give every cooperation I can to, to the new premier. And, uh, and I'll say again how pleased I am that the finances of the province is in such good shape and because uh, nobody should worry in this province tonight or tomorrow in the stock market they should not worry because the province is in wonderful financial shape better than any place on the continent i have no regrets in losing the election i've i've had um, 20 years of being premier of the province okay that was wac bennett talking about his defeat at the hands of dave barrett and 50 years ago today that ndp government achieved a lot in the short time it was in power, the creation of public auto insurance, for example, ICBC. How about the Agricultural Land Reserve, the ALR? That's still in effect in British Columbia as well. This was a major, major breakthrough for that party. You remember what W.A.C. Bennett said 50 years ago? He said the socialist hordes are at the gate. That's what Wacky Bennett said at the time when the NDP uh, took power. Okay, let's discuss this 50th anniversary of the NDP government being elected with my guest, Rod Mickelberg. He's the author of the book, The Art of the Impossible on the Barrett Government. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Rod, thanks for coming on today. No problem, Mike. And I should point out that uh, I'm the co-author of the book. Um, I wrote the book with Jeff Meggs. Jeff Meggs, of course. Okay, thank you for reminding us of that, Rob. Okay, Rod, what's going through your mind today, 50 years ago since the election of the, of the Barrett government? Well, a lot of memories. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem like 50 years ago to us old-timers, 
But uh, really, it was like an absolutely extraordinary time for 39 months, the, mo- the most progressive, transformative, exciting, fun. I mean, you could put so many adjectives to this government. There really had never been a government like it before or since, and we'll never see its like again. It was a product of its time, and they did enormous things, and many of them, of course, are with us still. Yeah, what, let's talk a little bit about that election campaign. I know the social credit government had been in power for a long, long time. WAC Bennett had been premier for decades, literally, you know. And how did the, how did the Socreds lose power? Why did they lose power in that election? Well, I think the consensus is that the old man, as he was called, WAC Bennett, was 72, and he was looking 72, and he went one election too many. Really, uh, he'd lost his way. He was so skillful for so many years, manipulating politics and the people and warning about the socialist hordes at the gates and, and so on. And, uh, I mean, really, he just dominated the province for 20 years. But a lot of, uh, I mean, there were a lot of things that were starting to fall apart. He'd lost his way. He ran a terrible campaign uh, in the summer of 72. And uh, things like, (laughs) he wouldn't tell the media where he was going. You know, and and this this sad little election uh, cavalcade would show up at a town with no media. And he, he described this as the new way of campaigning. And uh, it, it, it really wasn't any good. And uh, Barrett ran a perfect campaign. Like he just, he got rid of the fear factor that had always killed the NDP right at the end when it looked like they might form government. People would become what they called 10-second Socrates. They hated W.A.C. Bennett going into the ballot box and they hated him afterwards. But during those 10 seconds that they were at the ballot box, they would vote against yeah. the NDP and for the social credit. But that disappeared in this election. And Barrett's stayed out of the lower mainland. He wouldn't be a target. He never predicted uh, election, uh, a victory. He just campaigned with the people, going to small towns throughout B.C. And just it was a relaxed summer campaign. And people lost their fear of the NDP. What was the main message? What was the main message that Dave Barrett pushed in that campaign 50 years ago? It was that we have to do better. That this it's it's gone on too long, and there has to be a change. But he didn't sort of proclaim that from the rooftops. He low keyed it. And what really happened was the NDP increased its vote, but the social credit vote fell apart, and it gravitated for the first time to other parties. The Liberals and the Conservatives took 29% of the vote. So Barrett was able to get a sweeping majority with 39% of the vote. And that was the first time that had happened, that uh, the right did not consolidate around social credit and W.A.C. Bennett. And, you know, Bennett, uh, Barrett just got this enormous majority. Yeah, speaking of Rod Mickelberg, co-author of the book The Art of the Impossible on the Dave Barrett government, 50 years today. Uh, 50 years ago today was the Dave Barrett government was elected in British Columbia. I mean, people couldn't believe it. Even though everything was going Barrett's way and everything was going against W.A.C. Bennett, nobody was predicting an NDP victory because they'd seen Bennett Mm. win election after election, and they really could not believe that he would lose and that the NDP would win. And so when, when the results came in, I mean, it was absolutely stunning. People could not believe that this had really happened. And uh, there was just this enormous eruption, of course, joy and uh, for the NDP supporters that had lost. 
so many elections over the over the years they couldn't believe it had really happened like disbelief yeah. rapturous disbelief and then the, for social credit they they couldn't believe it uh, it had happened to them and you you knew they were desperate right at the end of the campaign when uh, you know there was WAC Bennett one of his quirks he didn't allow polling in BC mm. so there was no way to gauge the mood of the public and mm. they had out at, at the P&E they had these uh, Bennett burgers, Barrett burgers, you could buy burgers for the uh, for the politician you liked. And the Barrett burgers were way ahead, and, and everyone paid attention to this because it was the only <laughs> poll there was. And Barrett burgers were way ahead, and these these social credit aides were dispatched to the NDP, to the P&E, to buy, to buy up dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of Bennett burgers, who suddenly forged into the lead, but nobody was fooled. Okay. There was also a, a bit of a split in the vote, too, uh, as I recall. Like, there was a Liberal Party that won yep. some seats. There was a Progressive Conservative Party yep. in British Columbia that won a couple of seats. How uh, how significant was that? That was, that was, that was you know, first of all, uh, W.A.C. Bennett had gone on too long. Barrett ran a perfect campaign, but that was the key. Uh, Daryl Warren of the, of the Conservative Party took, like, 12% of the vote. That was unheard of. Uh, the Liberals took seven under David Anderson, took 17 percent. And as I, was, as I said, that's 29 percent of the vote. Much yeah. of that uh, total used to go to social credit uh, because people, as, we, as I said, would become these 10 second Socreds and vote against the NDP rather than for W.A.C. Bennett. And that didn't happen in this election. And that was that was pivotal. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the 50-year anniversary of the election of the Dave Barrett NDP government in British Columbia, August 30th, 1972. My guest, Rod Mickelberg, co-author of The Art of the Impossible. It's a book on the NDP government of Dave Barrett. Let's take a couple of phone calls here. Tim on the line in Langley. Hey, Tim, go ahead. Hey, uh, one, I've read that book, and it's a, it's a very good book, very accurate I remember that very well. I was a 17-year-old who had signed up for that election. Uh, our family was an old CCF uh, family, so I had been involved before, and it was an incredibly exciting uh, a night for uh, NDPers that night. And especially as a young kid, you bet I was. Uh, I was one of those guys in the audience uh, after we we uh, cleared the polls. I'd been a scrutineer. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Tim. I guess, yeah, it was an exciting night. That was evident in the audio we played earlier there, Rod. And what was the uh, what, do, what do you think the hopes were for people that night in that big break? That was the first time the NDP had been elected anywhere, was it not? Well, absolutely. In B.C., certainly. And, uh, I mean, people couldn't believe it. I mean, I, you know, young people would say the only premier they ever knew was W.A.C. Bennett. And, they, you know, they were 25 or something like that. And it was just, it issued this torrent of expectations and hope that, you know, there would be a new day ahead. Because, you know, W.A.C. Bennett had his day, but really by, by 1972, I mean, B.C. Was almost, had almost become a laughingstock uh, to the rest of Canada. And you didn't, you didn't have Hansard, you didn't have question period, you had part-time MLAs, you had six-week sessions, you know, it was it was a bit of a joke, and uh, you know, <laughs> W.A.C. Bennett would talk about you know creating Cascadia and five regions of Canada and and stuff like that, and 
uh, it was really timed for a change. And again, for people who had been in the CCF and then the NDP, it was a day they, they, they just couldn't comprehend and they were just yeah. through the roof with expectation. Yes, Sharon on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Sharon, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, the comment I wanted to make, uh, I was living in Vancouver at the time, 17, 18 years old, and uh, the small businesses, my dad worked for a welding company uh, down in Vancouver, and they were worried when NDP got in that uh, they they bought property just across the line and would move the, the business down across the line. Uh, they were afraid that basically uh, NDP was strictly for the working man and businesses were going to suffer. And that's basically what I remember about the NDP. Yeah, sure. And, and you heard that in the WAC Bennett clip that we played there. He was saying, you know, he was worried about a run on the stock market after the NDP w- was elected. Rod, can you comment on that? Well, it reminds me of the, the, the famous Vancouver Sun headline uh, the day after the, the election. Blaring headline, but it was a two-stack headline. NDP slays Socred Dragon. Business <laughs> takes news calmly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got to yeah. get that in, you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, what would you say? I mean, this was a, well, a three year government, right? Like, yeah, Barrett was only, he, he was in power for one term. He called a snap election three years ago, later. Why did he call that snap election just three years later? Well, we'll never really know. I mean, uh, but in those days, there were no polls, really. There were no aides telling him what to do and political operatives in the back rooms. I mean, Barrett was a one-person show who test, who had a lot of rely, who relied on his, he really had a good feeling about his own skills and feel for the politics of a situation, which was actually quite flawed. But he had a lot of confidence in himself. And I think he thought he could maybe steal the election because that summer he had just ordered, uh, the government had ordered 50,000 private sector workers back on the job. And there'd been nothing like that really in Canada, not in the private sector. And it was popular, you know, and uh, the election signs ran, B.C. has strong leadership, let's keep it that way. And his government had become, uh, for a lot of different reasons, had become increasingly unpopular. And Bill Bennett, very skillfully, underrated, had united the right. And the liberals and the conservatives were going nowhere. And Barrett could see storm clouds coming. And he thought maybe by going early, it would get worse, even worse later, he could steal it. And it didn't turn out to be the case. And that's why he went and people still blame him for that because there were still other things they could have done in government. Right. Yeah. Defeated by Bill Bennett, WAC's son, famously there after just three years in power. But boy, that that three year government, though, Rod, I mean, sadly, just got a minute left here. Like, what would you highlight as the accomplishments of that government? It's there are too many to mention. I will mention one, the Agricultural Land Reserve. I mean, that was incredible. Just like that. This is the way they did things in those days. They froze all the farmland in the province, just like that. And that legacy is with us today. And every time I fly into Vancouver and look out over the Fraser Valley and all those green, lush farms, I think, thank goodness. We don't have that urban sprawl that so many cities have. Thank goodness for the Dave Barrett government and the Agricultural Land Reserve. But really, they did so much. Rod, it's great talking to you today. Thank you for coming on. Okay, Mike.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about this viral post on social media here overnight about someone selling puppies outside a SkyTrain station. Are you kidding me? I'm looking at this post here. This is part of the poster says, hey, city of Vancouver, these people are selling fully trained, in quotation mark, puppies at the SkyTrain station for the third week in a row. The beast, this is your bailiwick. I filed a report with you last week, but I've heard nothing. Hashtag puppy mills. Really? Like, and it's got a picture of a big crowd of people looking at these puppies outside the Vancouver City Center uh, SkyTrain station. Rebecca Bretter standing by. First, let me check in quickly with Tim French, a producer here at the show who saw these puppies outside the SkyTrain. Hey, Tim. Hey, Mike, this is just the craziest turn of events. Yeah, man. Tell me about this. Where did you see these puppies? Okay, so for those who aren't aware, 980 CKNW is located in the TD Tower in downtown Vancouver, which is right by Vancouver City Center Station. And yeah. one day, one just random Friday a couple of weeks ago, I was leaving work, as I do, and I see a crowd formed right at the entrance of Vancouver City Center Station. And upon closer inspection, it's a, a group, like six or seven puppies, and everyone's yeah. gathered around. People are running from all around trying to get a glimpse and a picture and maybe a quick, you know, pet of the of these adorable, adorable puppies. And yeah. my first instinct, as just because I, I think I'm a bit of an optimist, is, oh, these puppies <laughs> are just, you know, it's like a pet a puppy event, like just a casual pet a puppy event. I didn't see any signage anywhere, but that was my assumption. They were there... The following Monday, I saw them again, maybe two other times as well. In fact, yesterday was the last time that I saw them. And it only was when one of our other producers, Ben Dooley, sent me that tweet that you just read out saying that it's, it's, they're being sold. I just was shocked. Like This, to me, seemed like just a, a, a casual, innocent uh, pet-a-puppy event. Yeah, yeah. No, I've never heard of someone sort of... Putting puppies up for sale outside a SkyTrain station. Now, I'm taking a look at a couple of your photos that you took. I mean, they're cute puppies, right? They look like sort of mixed breed dogs, I guess, would you say? Yeah, I wasn't sure of the breeds. They definitely seem sort of like mutts, but if I could yeah. describe them, they seemed like a bit like St. Bernard puppies. Like, they were quite big, but they were still very, very cute. Yeah, I think these are going to be big dogs when they grow up. I'm just taking a look at some of the photos. Like, they, <laughs> you always look at the paws. That's always the giveaway. How big are these dogs going to get? Very cute puppies, but yeah, look like they could grow up to pretty big dogs. Look like. Oh yeah, no, they're sure. going to be. Uh, it's going to be the next, the sequel to Beethoven. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, thank you for that, Tim. Let's check in with Rebecca Bretter now. Rebecca's an animal rights lawyer. Hey, Rebecca. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Hi, Rebecca. I know this jumped out at you too. What are your thoughts on it? It's absolutely insane. I mean, what I find infuriating is that the city obviously knows about it because at least a few people have complained by this point or sent in reports to the city and they're not doing anything about it, which is outrageous to me. I mean, as I see it, this is both a public safety and an animal welfare concern and a serious one at that. I mean, where are these dogs from? Are they healthy? Do they have behavioral issues? I think, of course, who when you see a puppy like that, I haven't seen them myself, and it's it's yeah. kind of it's a good thing I didn't because I'd give them a piece of my mind. But it's uh, it's really it's a huge uh, safety concern, and my my immediate thought maybe I'm not as as optimistic <laughs> as Tim, but my immediate thought is where are these puppies from? And yeah. my concern is that they're either from puppy mills where they're bred in these horrible tiny 
cages, horrible conditions where they're mistreated, and that it's going to lead to impulse buying. I mean, who wouldn't want to get a cute puppy like that? But people don't. People shouldn't be impulse buying a dog. This is a lifetime commitment. People have to realize what they're getting into. And like you said, how big are these dogs even going to get? Who knows? I mean, you don't know. I mean, I would I would advise against making a snap decision to purchase a puppy outside of a SkyTrain station. I mean, come on. I've never heard of anything like this before. It's bizarre. No, and I haven't either. I mean, and there's a reason why some cities are starting to ban the sell of the sale of of pets and pet stores, right? Because yeah. it does lead to impulse buying, and then it ends up in either behavioral issues with animals, and then a public safety concern, and and then they get get uh, thrown into the shelter. But what I don't understand is if the city finds cannabis, like the cannabis <laughs> vendors who don't have business licenses. If they're fining uh, people like that, why on earth is the city not doing something about this? They certainly, at the very least, I, I bet these people don't even have a business license. I mean, there's no reputable or responsible breeder or person who would be selling dogs on the sidewalk in front of a SkyTrain station. Yeah. How I mean, big, it's just insane. How big of a problem are puppy mills in British Columbia right now? I mean, we've heard a lot about this over the years. How bad is it? It's still pretty bad. I mean, it's it, it. The problem is that because it's there, they tend to be underground operations. It's hard to find out where exactly they are, and then to and then to enforce it. But it's when people start getting puppies from these types of places, and then the puppies get sick um, within the first several months. So that's when the SPCA sometimes finds out about it, or if there's a good neighbor that realizes that there's something really off going on in the property when they see animals kept in cages, like in filthy little cages. But it's still a pretty big problem in B.C. Quebec is, sorry, Quebec is probably the worst province in Canada, but we still unfortunately have these puppy mills here in British Columbia. That's why I really strongly urge people, do not buy, do not get tempted to buy puppies online, especially that's a big problem here on Kijiji or Craigslist. Because more often than not, they do come from puppy mills. Reputable breeders have yeah. uh, have good websites. You could go and visit their home. But I, of course, always suggest to people to, to get a dog or, or a cat from the SPCA or any other good, reputable rescue. There's so many out there to be adopted mm-hmm. instead of to be purchased. There are a lot of ads online. If you just go online, you can find lots of ads for puppies for sale on online websites like you mentioned. And I actually saw in my neighborhood recently uh, a notice pinned up on a telephone pole. Hey, puppies for sale. Give me a call. I mean, so, you know, people are looking to make money where, where they can. What kind of regulations are in place in British Columbia around sort of breeding of breeding of dogs or are there any? There, there are. They aren't uh, that thorough. I mean, they, the regulations fall under our, our animal cruelty legislation in British Columbia, and it's a very short regulation that basically says that uh, anyone operating a, a, cannery or a, a cattery or a kennel for breeding purposes, they have to follow the standards um, according to, to industry. I'm, okay. I'm kind of paraphrasing there, but they're very general. But let me just say one thing. So sure. for the listeners, um, if you do see these people in front of the SkyTrain station, please, instead of taking your phones out and taking a picture for Instagram purposes, please call 311. That's the number for Vancouver. Report it. Try calling bylaws for the city of Vancouver. But the best number to call for the city of Vancouver is 311. 
so that bylaw officers could go or the police could go right then and there. Because if people are posting this on Instagram without actually reporting it, by the time bylaw officers or police officers go, they may be gone. So it's best to put the phone away, call the authorities so that something could actually be done about it. You mentioned, Rebecca, that some municipalities are banning the sale of dogs and cats in pet stores, right? Like how many how many municipalities have done that? Oh, gosh, I don't know if on top of mind, um, there are there are at least several in British Columbia. I mean, Richmond yeah. was was the first one a number of years ago, probably a good decade ago now that uh, that banned the sale of, of cats and dogs. What, and what stores. is and what is the rationale for that? I mean, what's wrong with buying a pet at a pet store like a puppy? Well, what's wrong with it? Two, two main things. One is that often they do come from puppy mills and puppy mills, for those who may not be familiar with it, it's when dogs and cats mainly are kept in these tiny little cages, bred like machines. They're not treated properly at all. They often have medical conditions and they suffer in these types of environments. And then they, they get and then their puppies get sold that they themselves have medical conditions so, and yeah. health issues. And so that's that's one of that's part of the rationale for not selling pets in pet stores, but also because there are so many cats and dogs to be adopted in shelters. And I know there may have been a bit of a quote unquote shortage during the pandemic, but that's starting to change. And and it's you don't have to go and and adopt a, a cat or dog just from the SPCA. There are many other rescues that that you could find that are rescuing mm-hmm. um, animals from around the world. But again, you have to be careful because there are some that are not reputable in the sense that they're they're saying that they're quote unquote rescuing, but yeah. they're they're actually purchasing them from like puppy mills themselves and then selling them under the guise of rescue. So you have to be careful about that too. Do you think that kitten and puppy sales in pet stores should be banned all throughout BC? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. okay. hands down, absolutely. Period. They're they're cats and dogs. These are not. We're not buying chairs. We're not buying furniture. We're not buying you know a product. These are live right. sentient beings that deserve a lot more than being than than having a boat put on them <laughs> to look cute in the window so that someone could impulse buy it only to later realize that they're actually not ready to have a companion animal for the rest of his life. All right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking puppy sales in BC with my guest, Rebecca Bretter. Let's go to your phone calls here. Daniel in Vancouver. Hi, Daniel. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Hi, Rebecca. Um, big fan of the show. Uh, just caught this as I was driving home. Um, I believe the organization um, is they actually they rescue um, puppies and socialize them for adoption. Um, I don't. I don't think they're a puppy mill. If this is who, if I'm thinking of the same organization. Okay, Rebecca. Does it make any difference if they're rescue dogs being offered for adoption? No, absolutely not. I mean, and I don't know for a fact if these dogs are coming from puppy mills. We just don't know where they're from. But even if these people are saying that they're quote unquote rescuing dogs, there's absolutely no responsible rescue organization who would be just handing off or selling dogs even for a adoption fee. On the side of a street, responsible organizations, rescue organizations, it's it's a, a whole process. There's an application. There's a time period for getting to know the potential new companion animal guardians. There's an interview process. There's a home inspection for inside and outside if it's a detached home. You know, it's, a, it's this detailed process as it should be to make sure that the right people are matched with 
the right animals so that both the animal and people are can enjoy each other and that the well that the welfare concerns are met and that the animal is properly cared for this is uh, just outrageous there's no excuse why these dogs are being sold in front of a sky train well, if they're being if they're being offered maybe they're being offered for adoption well i'm sure they are being offered up for adoption but that doesn't yeah. change the fact that there are all these concerns still yeah bill and surrey hi bill yeah, I'd like to ask Rebecca a question. Thanks for making the, taking my call. Uh, what are your feelings, Rebecca, on people who are reputable breeders? Uh, for instance, I, I know several, and quite often they're not. They're not reputable at all. I, I knew one lady, she was a horse trainer and breeder, but she also sold puppies. She had a, a dog of her own, and she told me that after seven years, this dog is going up for a forever home, in quotations. And I said, so you're going to give away or sell your forever dog? And obviously yeah. she was just getting rid of her dog because she didn't want to pay the vet bills after she bred it twice a year for the last five years. You know, they're know. out there, they're out there in gangbusters, and they're reputable. So where, where do you draw the line? It's, you know, I've sold puppies in the past, too, from my own little puppy, from my own dogs, and sold the puppies to friends and family. Um, and, and I don't consider myself a puppy farm at all. No, and and that doesn't make you a breeder either, right? I know some people that their dogs have had one or maybe two litters at most, and that's not what makes you a breeder. And and the way you described it, that's not what a reputable breeder is. And first of all, let me just start off by saying that I I don't want to say that all breeders are absolutely terrible people. They're not. I mean, I have a couple of them as as clients, but I my strong preference is for people to adopt instead of shop. That's why there's a saying, adopt, don't shop, because there are so many animals that need to be properly rescued and taken either out of shelters or out of uh, rescue organizations so that they can be given a second chance. There's no reason now to be buying animals as opposed to, uh, as opposed to adopting them. But that said... Just because someone buys an animal, I don't want to make them feel like they're a bad person for doing that. Uh, um, some people do you, to me buy yeah. them uh, or have bought um, a dog for family purposes. But do you do you feel that uh, existing dog breeders in British Columbia? Do you think they need stricter regulations? Absolutely, absolutely. But you know what? The problem is, is that and that would be the starting point because the regulations we have now are certainly not good enough. I mean, they're they're very, very bare bones. It's literally just several provisions in our uh, under our Prevention right. of Cruelty to Animals Act. And uh, but the problem is, is that even if we had these regulations, who would be enforcing it? There's only so much the SPCA can do. We just don't have enough bodies. So that's why. Bottom line, please adopt, don't shop. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. All right, we're talking shoplifting. Phone me on the open line, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's check in with Rui Rodriguez now from the Retail Council of Canada. He's their executive advisor on loss prevention. Hey, Rui, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Hey, let's talk about shoplifting. I mean, this has always been a problem for retailers going back forever, but do you see a rise right now in organized shoplifting rings operating across the country? Yeah, we do, Mike. And, uh, you know, it's been ongoing through COVID. Uh, I think, obviously, it's understood with economic times and the way things were. Um, Certainly, we've seen an increase of shoplifting, but more specifically, violent offenses uh, relates to shoplifting. 
I think that's where the biggest concern is and where we've seen the biggest escalation is aggressive behavior, as obviously we saw through COVID uh, for all the retailers that stayed open as essential services. But those that have reopened since COVID are also now facing it. And with more locations being open again and not becoming something that became very prevalent, everybody's dealing with it. So I would say the the violent, aggressive behaviors uh, and certainly use of weapons um, to the degree we haven't seen in many years. Um, knives, spare spray, but also guns and some incidents is certainly on the rise. Yeah. Are there any particular type of retail operations that are being targeted? Like, is it a lot of high-end stores get targeted by shoplifters? Uh, I think it's across the board. There's certain, uh, you know, I think ones that will get targeted more because if they carry a lot more uh, products in one location, so certainly big box um, grocers get targeted a lot, you know, the typical big box locations, but certainly, uh, Luxury as well uh, is getting targeted. I think the key is uh, the demand. You know, organized crime, especially in British Columbia, where you're located, I mean, uh, is a bit different from some of the areas of the country. Uh, we see a higher degree of uh, organized crime gangs uh, leveraging, you know, some of the folks that have the, the drug addiction issues and so forth to steal for them. Uh, and part of it is so they can fence, uh, you know, pay 20 cents on the dollar. So really part of the other element here is the demand Uh, with economic times and uh, the growth of e-com. It's also created a growth for organized crime groups and criminals to sell uh, from social media. and that. So with people more open to pay less or look for items that are uh, less than retail value because of economic times, it just puts a demand uh, out there. And of course, the organized criminals will prey upon that. So that all of that coming together has created a a great opportunity for the criminals uh, to have outlets. Uh, but as I said, it puts a huge risk uh, on our front line and safety in our communities when those criminals have also escalated with violence. Yeah. Speaking of Rui Rodriguez, Retail Council of Canada, let's squeeze a couple of calls in here too. Murray on the line in Delta. Hi, Murray. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today? I'm fine. What would you like to say? Go ahead. Uh, I just got a little quick story. I was a uh, security guard for a uh, small chain of, um, um, what's it called, like box stores. Yeah. I'm not going to name the name because uh, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here. But um, I uh, I actually, uh, it was back in the day when I was younger, and um, we didn't have, I, I think the, the situation now is kind of let it happen, don't fight somebody. But back in the day, in the 90s, I uh, I was um, I kind of took on somebody who was uh, shoplifting, and I messed up my shoulder. And then uh, the boss of the store, um, I, I was in rehab for the shoulder for a bit, and so I was off. And they let me go, and I kind of understood because you know I I, I was off, right? Yeah. And uh, and then about two years later, um, they had a lawsuit where they were shaving hours off of all the employees. So is the, is the target really on the right group of people here? Should we not be looking at the uh, the management that's shaving hours? Okay, well, 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 let me let me talk to Rui about about that. Like, let me ask you, Rui, about you know when it comes to shoplifting, and some stores have had to hire security. What is the usual protocol on that? Like, if you see someone shoplifting, or is there any protocol whether you should aggressive like stop someone? Or you just phone the police? Like, what do what do stores normally do? 
Yeah, and I can't speak to uh, every corporation has their own um, mandate. I think at the essentially, uh, Mike, it's uh, personal safety and customer safety is paramount. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, as violence increases, weapons are used. Uh, whether it's you know, as the gentleman mentioned, security guard professionals, the frontline workers, our management. I think the general message is everybody's personal safety is critical. Uh, and if you do get into an altercation with a shoplifter, you have no idea how they're going to escalate. You got yourself, your other employees, customers, uh, and that's just going to prolong the altercation. So, you know, sometimes it's unfortunate. Let it happen. Let the person get out of the environment so that the safety of everybody is preserved and follow up with yeah. police, provide the information, which, you know, I always encourage retailers to do that. As frustrating as it may seem at times, you know, whether it's video evidence, uh, any information that can be shared, police can work with to try to look at, you know, commonalities or other other people reporting similar, similar individuals, similar methods, so they can work with. It. Of course, our police partners are also stretched thin right now, um, both, you know, with COVID impacting the force, the resources being there. Uh, the typical call today for police, where in the past maybe one officer could have handled, uh, now you may need two to three officers. You know, you may be encountering mental health issues, drug addiction issues. That person maybe need to take it to another facility to clear a call for police. Uh, has gotten longer as well. So uh, it really boils down to, you know, the community safety and the personal safety. There are some retailers that are going back because, uh, you know, frustration set in with the frontline workers with management that they see these repeat prolific offenders keep coming in day after day uh, and continue to get aggressive. So now you've got customers and employees getting frustrated if they don't see consequences for these folks uh, and getting involved. And we've seen some examples of those. So Part of what we're doing with Retail Council of Canada and, you know, retailers is reaching out to government police to get at the table talking through long-term solutions. Uh, we don't think this is a policing problem. It's not just a government problem. It's a community security program problem uh, where yeah. we need to look at. We don't know all the answers, but we know getting to the table to lock up, you know, how do we address this at root cause, uh, at the root cause issue is critical. Let's go to another call on the open line. Sean calling from Kelowna. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. Oh, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, yeah, sure. just uh, we're we're feeling the same thing out here as you folks are in Vancouver. Probably. I, I mean, the violent crime is now starting to spill in, not as prevalent as it is out there, but it's now beginning to happen. And I think the what's missing in all of this is accountability. You know, we go back, we say the government, and we say, you know, we say the police. The police, I feel for the retailers, I feel for the police, I feel for the citizens that are out there working hard every single day, yet the politicians and the judges do not have their back at all. And that's, that's I want to, I wish accountability would be for, for, first and foremost in these yeah. discussions, i.e., who, who are the judges? Like, let's stop, let's stop talking in broad strokes, the politicians. No, let's talk about the Minister of Public Safety. Let's talk about, the, there's a, an example of a prolific offender in Kelowna that's been released over, I forget the number, it's crazy, over 300 hundreds. times. Yeah, hundreds of times, released, yeah. He was released on a Monday, and he was back in jail later that week, and then he was released again. It's, yeah, I mean... So, who, so the media needs to talk. Who are the judges? Let's start holding thank, specific thank, people accountable. Right. The thank judges you for the, and the... Thanks for the call. I mean, we've talked a lot about the chronic repeat offenders here on the show. I mean, we're talking people in some cases who have been arrested, re, they're released, reoffend, arrested again reoffend, release, I mean, just rinse and repeat for like literally 
some people like hundreds of police files, like hundreds. Rui, does the Retail Council of Canada have any concerns on that with that regard? Uh, very much so. And again, it's a concern shared by uh, many uh, of our retail members. And we hear from uh, you know, other retailers who are not members of RCC. Uh, you know, and not to argue with the caller, I, I agree with his comments uh, to a certain extent. You know, we actually had a meeting um, a few weeks ago with, uh, you know, Minister Farnworth, uh, so mm. Minister of Public Safety for BC. Uh, he listened to what we had to say, and we had several retail members. What I can tell you is uh, in my career in retail over 30 years, uh, the activity of government actually coming to the table to want to listen and hear through the issues that work with us, I haven't seen in my 30 years career. Uh, so, you know, if, if I think about moving inches, uh, I think they're very concerned and very aware. Uh, it, it isn't just a political issue, though. Uh, I think we need to come forward with actions. Uh, so to get... Yeah. Uh, people to listen is one thing, but I think it is a community thing. I mean, we certainly accountability is key, uh, and I agree with the comment. I think it falls upon all of us, right? So whether it's business, communities, uh, definitely government 100%, police, courts, but it is about collaboration. You know, governments themselves, uh, you know, they have their agendas, of course, but beyond that, you know, they need to look at from the community, what solutions are you looking for? So I think that's where the really benefit of, us all talking together with the goal of then talk becomes cheap. Let's come up with some solutions, some things that we can implement. Uh, and it is had to be all involving because police locking people up isn't solution. So, you know, we talk about the repeat prolific offender. We yeah. hear over and over the same offender has been played out 30, 40 times. But if you look at root causes, did they get before the courts and get played out? Um, should they have gone through a different program? Uh, did they need mental health ish, uh, assistance? Did they need drug addiction assistance? There's, there's some home uh, homelessness issue that could have been addressed. So even for the courts and the crowns and the ministers, it's having that full-serve solution around, yeah, there's, gonna, there's bad people out there that just commit crime and they're bad people, but there's also a significant element of criminal that there are root cause issues as to why they fell into a life of criminality and just putting them in front of the courts and locking them up isn't fixing the issue. If anything, it may be teaching them they're trading better in jail with other criminals. Uh, but again, looking at root cause solution and diverting people out of a life of crime, that's a, a complete community effort, which then I agree, ultimately, the government has to be on top of what are those programs need to look like. Squeeze in another call. Sean on the line in New West. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. In California, a few years ago, they passed a bill or a law that said that any shoplifting under $950 is a misdemeanor. And several retail chains there had to close hundreds of stores because of this. I'm wondering, does your guests see this type of thing coming to Vancouver? Rui, your thoughts? Uh, we, just you know a, we just got a minute left. We got one minute, Rui. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm always hesitant to be compared to the U.S. I think there's a lot of things we learn from the U.S. and some of the trades. I think in Canada, when we really want to make something meaningful happen, we look at have to look at the trends in Canada. So to the caller, I'd say we look at the trends and we learn from them, and then we have to rationalize with what is actually happening in Canada. However, uh, I think we definitely look at our criminal code and look at the impact, and I go back to it's got to be a root cause effort. It's really a community issue and figuring out how we can really help in some of the communities you know if you look at the downtown vancouver and areas that have been like Hastings, granville you know how do we address that issue in a meaningful way and if we can make 
some movement forward in helping with the drug addictions, the meth issues, the people that prey upon those folks, the organized crime, when we start to make some movement, I think others will come on board to really make it a community effort. Rui, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike.